righteousness of God freely given to those who trust in Christ. Paul, uh, if you've been with us the whole time, which I know most of us have been, has spent chapters, two and a half chapters, outlining that good works won't make you right with God. Outlining that being born in a Jewish household won't make you right with God. Outlining that having the excuse of not being religious, of not growing up in the faith, won't make you right with God. He's been clear, and as Paul always is, he's been forensic in his analysis and in his arguments. He's going to summarise this section a little bit in 3.23. We'll look at it next week. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're without excuse. Now, a doctor is unkind, aren't they, if they don't tell you the truth about your disease when it's at a curable stage. Even if they don't want you to be discouraged or scared, they're obliged to tell you the truth. (coughs) And it it will have, I'm sure it has, felt a heavy five weeks if you've been coming all the time. Heavy, but full of truth. Again and again being reminded of God's right justice. Again and again being reminded of your sin. Again and again being reminded that what we need is not some help to be better, but a total rescue. And now in these kind of last verses of this section, Paul is like a, like a lawyer coming to the end of his closing argument. We're to imagine him having outlined the evidence, face the questions which he's kept rhetorically answering. And now he concludes. And if you follow Jesus today, I want you to see here that this verdict is good for us. Because for all the bad news about our true condition, we know there's a remedy so we know what's coming. So this is really important. We hear this bad news and we continue to hear it because then we know there's a remedy and it, and it puts the remedy in light of what we've heard before. If you're not trusting in Jesus today, hear this as the news which it is and respond. So we're going to look at his concluding speech. As I said, imagine as a lawyer, here's his headings. Firstly, Paul outlines the problem. We are all under the power of sin. We see that in these first few verses. I think we're, we're often quite optimistic about ourselves, pretty optimistic about the human race. Hey, we all know we do wrong things, don't we? We make mistakes. We, we let our anger sometimes get out of control. We say things we shouldn't. We think things we know are wrong. But any suggestion we're, we're rotten to our core strikes us as, as repellent. That we don't like it. Sure, that there's a few evil people out there. But, but most of us are, are good people. We're just muddling our way through. We, of course, we slip from time to time. That is a horribly enslaving lie to believe. It's a lie because the issue is this. If our problem is actually quite small, well, it's quite an easy thing to fix then. If my selfishness is something I can sort out, then just give me the right program. Give me the right steps to do and I'll root out all my issues. Give me enough time and I'll sort myself out completely. That's the familiar message of every single self-help program out there today, raking in millions. Just keep doing enough of the right things and eventually you'll be sorted. Our view of sin is essential to how we'll view God. And if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you'll have recognised that lie which we listen to and you'll have gone, I do that again and again. I think that's how I fix it. I just do this, I just do this, I just do that, I could do this a little bit differently, and then I'll be fine. But if you remember a few weeks ago, I asked if anyone here could swim the Atlantic. It's ludicrous, of course. 
Someone here may go, well, well, I can't even swim at all. They'd swim the Atlantic and they'd drown. Another one, maybe you could go, well, I could swim a few hundred meters. They would flounder and drown. I don't think we do have an Olympic open water swimmer here today. If we did, they could maybe get 20, 30 miles out to sea. But eventually they would tire and they would drown. Is one of those three more drowned than the others? No. It doesn't make a difference who swung further. And in the same way, Paul's argument has been that the religious person who trusts in morality, the pagan who indulges in all types of sin, neither of them can close to a righteous heart, a perfect heart. So they're equally lost and equally condemned to perish. So we have already made the charge, Paul says, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's the first thing he does. He outlines the problem. We're all under sin. Secondly, he exposes our character. No one seeks God. We, this section here, he's, he strings together seven different Old Testament passages that, to make his point and to show us how sin affects us, to show us what it means to be under the power of sin, to show us how the law has always said this of mankind. As I said, notice the repetition. No one is righteous. Not even one. None are righteous. No one, no one, no one, no one. It makes him a bit harsh. They think it was harsh when he read it. He says there's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Feels a bit extreme, doesn't it, from Paul? Does it? No one seeks God? No one does good ever? Look at what he's saying. No one is righteous. He's saying that no one has right standing before God. It's a legal term. No one stands before the judge perfect. A five second thought about our own lives proves that to be true. If perfection is the standard, none of us can make it. No one understands. No one seeks God, he says. What does it mean to seek God? I I think at its most basic, it's having a desire to know the true God. To, to know him, to find him, to enjoy him, to have a, a desire to worship him and rejoice in him for who he is. And, and some will say, and some have said, I've read them, Paul's gone too far here. Like me, maybe you know many who don't yet follow Jesus, but are asking questions of truth. That maybe they pray. What about all those from other religions, Paul, who are looking for God? They seek God. We see people searching for things we know can only be found in Christ. And we make the assumption that because they're seeking the benefits of God, they are seeking God. And it's a problem we face. We want the good things God gives us, but we don't want him. We, we want peace, but we don't want the Prince of Peace. We want purpose, but we don't want his purposes for us. We want the gifts, but we do not want the giver of gifts. We see people and think they're seeking after God, but they're not. Think of Paul. Think of Paul as he was writing. Think of Paul's own story. As he walked down the road towards Damascus, Damascus, he was intent on murdering as many Christians as he could find. How desperately was he seeking God in that moment? He was not. God sought him. If anyone is truly seeking God, it must mean they've been sought out by him. 
If no one is capable of seeking God, then any human who is truly searching for him must have gone, undergone some change in themselves, which is caused by God's spirit, not their own. No one seeks God. So if you do follow Jesus here today, we need to recognise that we did not seek him out. He drew us to himself. We decided to put our faith in him only because he decides to give us faith. What difference does this make to know this? Well, you can rejoice. You can be grateful that God sought you out. How amazing is that? And we can be humbled by that, can't we? Because we know, as we look around, as we look in our hearts, that that there's nothing better or cleverer in you, which means you sought God, but someone else didn't. You're humbled that you have nothing that you weren't given. And all of that, as we've sung, as we'll sing a little bit later, leads to praise because we know that everything we have comes from him because he sought us out. No one seeks God. Paul continues to outline the effects of sin. He says, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And this again seems outrageous for Paul. No one does good, not even one. Paul, I have lots of friends who don't trust in Jesus who do wonderful good. I'm sure you do too. I know of many others around the world who use their time and their money and their gifts to help many. So, Paul, what do you mean no one does good? Well, he has in mind that our relationship with God, remember his argument he's been building up to. People who say their good deeds can fix that broken relationship. And he's reminding us they can't. That our good is just not good. Because we see when we look at the Bible's definition of a good deed, we see a Bible's definition of a good deed is, is good in both form and in motive. Good in what the deed is, but also in why we do it. For example, um, if you see an older lady across the street uh, and you want to help her across the street, uh, that's good in form when we help her, but why are you helping her? If it was because it was dark on the other side and you want to rob her when you get to that side, or uh, maybe you're helping her because you hope she'll give you some money in gratitude, or maybe you're helping her because you see a friend down the street who'll be impressed if you helped her. Oh, look at them. Well, then your good deed comes from a selfish heart and selfish motives. But a good deed, God says, is done for his glory, not our own. There's a story, a famous story once told, which gets to the heart of this. Once in a kingdom, long ago, there was a gardener. Here he is. Give him a name if you want. Let's call him Frank. There's Frank. He's got a massive carrot. That is a humongous carrot. And he decided to give it to his prince. He gave it to his prince because he loved him. When he gave it, the prince uh, discerned his love and devotion, discerned the fact that he expected nothing in return. Look at him, pleased as punch with his carrot. So as the gardener turned to leave, he said, here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce an even greater crop. It is yours. And the gardener went home rejoicing. There was a nobleman. A nobleman heard of this incident and he thought, well, If that's what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot, what would he give me if I gave him a fine horse? That's a fine horse. I literally Googled beautiful horse. It's a beautiful horse. So the nobleman, he gave that horse, presented the prince with his horse as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart. He said, you expect me to give you as I did to the gardener, but I'll not. You're very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. 
the gardener gave me the carrot, you were giving yourself the horse. Friends, if you know God loves you in Christ and there is nothing you can do but accept his perfect righteousness, then you can feed the hungry, you can visit the sick, you can help the poor and all of it will be done as a, as a gift to God. But if you think you're going to get or keep salvation because of these good deeds, it's really you you are feeding and clothing and visiting. Without faith in Christ, good deeds are never done truly for God. They're done for ourselves. And so they're not truly good. We need to get this about our sin. It's really important. Sin is mainly a condition of rebellion against God. It's not a condition of doing bad things to other people. It's why it's so, so sad and so pointless when people argue that they're, they're pretty much good people and so they don't need the gospel. What they mean is they treat other people decently. A lot of the time I agree with them. I, I had a good friend, uh, he's still a good friend, uh, went out for curry with him recently and he made this argument to me. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. He's a very decent bloke. He loves people. He treats them really well. He said, I'm a good person. I agreed. But that's not the main question. The main question is this. Do you love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? Do you love his son, Jesus? God is the most important person in the universe. It's not a good thing to do good things for people and yet have no love and passion for God. And someone who is under the power of sin does not seek God, does not know God, does not fear God. And it doesn't matter what we do for people. If we treat the king of the universe so badly by ignoring him, by belittling him and by mocking him, then we know, as Paul says here, we are under sin. It's a bleak picture Paul is painting in his courtroom. But remember, if you're trusting in Jesus, this is good news. We need to hear the diagnosis. If you're not trusting Jesus, this is good news. You need to hear the diagnosis. He goes on. He exposes our conduct, both our words and our actions, which are corrupt. He, he uses these Old Testament verses to show us that sin affects every part of us, particularly how it ruins our relationships. He deliberately in these verses, verses 13, 17, lists loads of body parts. He's outlining the total corruption sin brings. Firstly, he talks about our mouths, our words. He says their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. He says that for those under sin, our words are like death, full of corruption, unclean, that, that our tongues practice deceit. We know this, don't we? When we look at ourselves. We use our tongues to try and hide all this filth in our hearts. We, we say nice things to give a good impression to others, hiding what's really in our hearts. And maybe we sometimes think it's quite a good thing to do that. A good thing to hide what's really in our hearts or in our minds because in our unguarded moments we say what we think and we regret saying what we think. But the hypocrisy of our speech is not good either. And I think all of us, if we were to think about our speech this week, the words that have maybe poisoned the harmony in our homes, the atmosphere in our workplaces, the angry words, the, the hurtful, impatient, bitter words, the words that have, have belittled others because we wanted to boost ourselves. Well, the evidence is there. Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words are evidence of corrupt hearts, Paul says. 
down in verses 15 to 17, we see that being under sin is not only about what we say, but also about how we act. If, if God was to loosen his control on this world, these verses are saying, it would descend into anarchy, into absolute lawless violence. Because we're quick to hurt and harm if people get in our way. That's why God in his kindness has given us governments and policemen and armies, because by nature we'd take revenge on every offence against us. We'd turn to bloodshed. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. We may not see it that often in this country, but we see it often when infrastructure collapses. We get looting, we get murder. We've seen it really sadly in Turkey and Syria these last few weeks. Hundreds arrested for looting in the midst of that devastation. Under sin, human relationships are ruined. And if we look at our lives, I'm sure all of us would say our relationships are not as good as they could be, as they should be. We can all think of relationships which haven't been as great as they could be. People we've let down, people we've hurt, ways we've not honoured our parents, a husband or a wife we've not loved as we should, our our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues. Paul is saying that how we've treated others is a deep-seated evidence of the problem. But remember, we need to hear this diagnosis. Paul then tells us the cause of all this. We do not fear God. This is Paul's summary of everything we've seen so far. Where does the the ignorance of God, where does the willful rejection of him, where do the words and the actions all come from? There is no fear of God before their eyes. By nature, we're irreverent people. We have no sense of awe, no desire to honour God or glorify him as God. We're not naturally afraid of God. The fear of God is a central concept in the Bible. We're told countless times the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what is it? Well, the fear of God does not necessarily mean being scared of him, although that's probably also a right response. It means rather an an awe, a a respect, a a trembling before the greatness of God. It's a holy fear. And it's the antidote. It's the the medicine of all the effects of sin Paul has been outlining. C.S. Lewis once said, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, you do not know God at all. I'll say that again. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, you do not know God at all. You see, a right fear of God will see us look up to him. It will see us delight in him, be in awe of him and rightly fear him. Why? Because he's God and you're not. And I'm not. You see, God has the power and authority to take my life in an instant. God knows everything I've ever done, ever thought and ever said. He controls every aspect of the universe. Sai said he knew all of you by name. God knows how many hairs are on your head. God knows all that is going on in the world right now and all that's going on in your lives right now. God sustains the world. He keeps it on its axis. 
Why should we fear God? Because he is God and I am not. And that is a thought which should give me a right fear of God. I should tremble in his presence. Marvel in his presence. Isaiah, we looked at last year, famously fell down before God, exposed by his sin. And he said, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe to me, for I have seen the king. It's so right that we see God as our father. God is our father. But let's not sanitize him. He's our king. He's our Lord. He's our maker. He's our sustainer. Think of every word you can use to describe him. That is what God is like. And he's not like us. Imagine you saw God today, right now. Would you respond as Isaiah did? Friends, a a prayer to pray daily is that you would be someone who fears God. That we as a church would be marked as those who fear God, who live in awe of him, who who seek his face, who, who keeps his greatness and his majesty before us. He is the creator. We are merely creatures. And we, and I say this to me, I forget this so often. I forget this so easily. I spend all my time looking down at myself instead of looking up at him. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a fear of the Lord, something you'd say marks you. Are you someone who fears the Lord, who lives in awe and reverence to him in your daily life? Does our prayer life show it? Does our view of his word show it? There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we've seen Paul. The lawyer standing in the court, he's outlined the problem. He's exposed our character, he's exposed our conduct. He's outlined the cause and now finally he gives God's verdict. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In this whole section of Romans, Paul has primarily been speaking to the religious to Bible-believing, self-righteous people. It's why he quotes from the Old Testament here in this conclusion. This is what the, the law says people are like, and Paul is saying that it describes not just Gentiles, but Jews too. It applies to everyone who tries to keep the law, as well as those who don't know it or care about it. So the effect of knowing the law is not that we proudly claim I'm a good law keeper. The effect of knowing the law, he says here, should be that every mouth be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. We should have got to the end of five weeks in this section and be left silent with no excuse. The picture is of us in the dock of a law court silenced. They would do that in an old Roman court if they were guilty. The soldier would come up to you and slap your mouth shut because you've got nothing to say. You have no excuse. All that we can mutter under our breath after looking at this for five weeks is guilty, your honour. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Lord, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer or bring. No defence. I'm in desperate (coughs) trouble. We saw David in Psalm 51 last week quoted by Paul. David didn't blame Bathsheba for being an attractive woman. 
for bathing on the roof. He didn't blame God for giving him a sexual appetite. He didn't blame her husband for being away from home. No, he was on his knees and he said, against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This is the response Paul intends for us to have, to declare God the just judge and to be without excuse. I read about someone this week who's doing a PhD in neurological studies, advanced studies in the brain. He said the brain is more incredible than the most vast computer system in the world. Every experience we have and every word we speak is recorded in our brains. He was a Christian. He said this concerning that last day. He said, I think that in the last day, God is going to take our brain out of our head, put it on a table there in his courtroom, plug in a recorder and punch rewind. We're going to have to sit there and listen to our brain replay everything we've ever done, said and thought. The prosecuting attorney doesn't have to say a word. After such a recitation, what would there be to say? What use is there of arguing with God when God says he's weighed us in the balance and found us wanting? What will there be? Silence. Finally, in Paul's argument here, then, what advantage do we have? He says, let me start. What should we conclude? Then? Do we have any advantage? Thanks, looked at it last week. What advantage do we have if we've grown up in a Christian home, if we've regularly come to town church and hear his word taught? Paul says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We have the advantage of knowing the diagnosis. We become conscious of our sin. And when we're conscious of our sin, when we're so very aware of our sin, we can see the gospel in all its beauty. Having decided to ask Caroline to marry me, I needed to get an engagement ring. So I found my sister. She was useful. I went to the jewellers, browned some options in the cabinet. I then asked to view one that I thought looked good and cheap. However, before the jeweller took out the ring, I don't know if you've seen it done, he spread out a black velvet cloth on the counter. Only then did he set out the ring so that the diamond sparkled. These first few chapters of Romans had laid out a dark backdrop. But now Paul is about to get ready to bring out the diamond of the gospel so that we can see it sparkle. It's been a hard few weeks, hasn't it? been a hard message maybe that's why people aren't here this week but it's been a good one it's been an important one the first step on the Alcoholics Anonymous program is what it's this it's we admitted that we are powerless over our addiction that our lives became unmanageable an honest admission like this can be the first step to freedom we must each see our own sinfulness we must make use of the great advantage we have of truly knowing who we are and who God is and what he wants us declared in his word. Through the Lord, we become conscious of our sin. Next week, we're going to start at verse 21. It begins with probably my favourite word in the New Testament, but, but. 
Those three letters of a difference between heaven and hell. Finally, after this relentless indictment of Paul that we've heard, that we've had to endure, we come to where Paul finally says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Well done for sticking with us. It's time for the gospel. It's time for the diamond to shine. We've listened to the bad news so we might hear the goodness of the good news. So my prayer, and I'll pray now, is that this section of Romans will make you love the gospel. That, that, that it will make you dance for joy that if you're trusting in Christ, you're not just a sinner, you're a saved sinner. You're a saint, we're called. That this section will, will cause you to delight in Jesus, to truly delight in him, that you will burst with joy as you then go into the world, into your workplaces, into your families. That you'll long to speak to many about this news because you know the diagnosis we all face. But we also know the solution. We know the remedy because we know Christ. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the letter to the Romans. We thank you that Paul has spent so long making it clear to us that we have no excuse. That when we stand before you on that final day, our mouth will be silenced. We'll be held accountable to you. But we thank you magnificently that in Christ, we know that we have been given your righteousness. That apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Lord, help us to dwell rightly on the nature of our sin, on the indictment which Paul brings here in Romans. And let it cause us to worship you, delight in you, give you the praise you are due. And help us to go and live as changed people with real joy. Knowing that we have been given the solution, we've been given the remedy and it's available to all who trust in you.